The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Climate activists can make a huge contribution to increasing the public's understanding about important issues such as climate change and energy. Just have a look at Ottawa, Canada, where brave private citizens nailed the candidates for mayor in our October 24th election with question after question that showed how our city's $60 billion climate change plans were totally misguided. Today, we'll be speaking with an inspiring American citizen, a warrior who's been fighting the battle to convince people that the climate crisis is a complete fraud. Well, that's exactly right, Tom, and I'm very excited about this program. Uh, John Tucker contacted me quite some years ago to see how he could help to fight the climate fraud. He was aware with common sense, not with a science background that we have, that there was something very wrong with the promotion of this concept that man actually has a controlling impact on the temperature of the planet, as our listeners know, uh, have heard me for a long, long time. Man really has zero impact. It's a, it's kind of sad that a lot of good scientists feel it's worth their while to try to chase some tiny impact. Everybody realizes it's insignificant, but in fact, it really is uh, zero. So we need the, uh, as big an army as we can to battle a concept that has really taken the world over. 30 years ago, I never thought the the fraud, the delusion of man causing a climate change would ever take hold. But these people uh, had other targets and the target was never science. The target was never climate and weather. The target was to bring socialism to the entire world. I mean, it was a political motivation And as a matter of fact, uh, as we speak today, the UN is holding their 27th more or less annual conference of parties in Egypt. Uh, It it will be a 10-day meeting in which about 40,000 bureaucrats will live uh, in elegant luxury and basically talk about extorting money from the developed countries to the undeveloped countries claiming that it's reparations for climate change. But the conference is really a world conference on welfare. That is the whole reason for moving forward all these many years is to redistribute uh, wealth. And so it's just very exciting today to be able to talk to a man who's uh, 
thrown himself into the battle to try and, and help stop it. We're not going to stop it in a year or two. I, I think a decade is hopeful. 20 years, there's no question the earth will be cooling. That may or may not matter. But my hope is that a significant number of our audience today will be turned on learning about what our guest, John Tucker, has been doing in recent years. So, Tom, introduce John. Give people his background. Yeah, exactly, Jay. Well, John Tucker, a citizen activist, he first of all did his homework. He spent over 20 years speaking to nearly two dozen leading authorities, many of them multiple times, about the science of climate and the economics of renewable energy. So now equipped with that information, he's given over a half dozen presentations about the myth of human-caused climate change and has had hundreds of individual conversations about this myth. You know, Jay, he's also got a commonality with us when it comes to athletics. He He's a very successful high school and college track and field and cross-country coach for 34 years, and he's a competitive runner himself, okay? He's a record-setting and award-winning runner in college, and after college, he's gone on and won five silver medals in the USATF Masters Competition and a gold medal in the 2000 USATF Masters Competition 50 to 54 pentathlon. So yeah, John has done a lot of things like us, not just the climate, but also the athletics because <laughs> we're both fanatics about exercise. In fact, after this it, interview, I'll be on my bike. <laughs> I already, I just got off mine. I did a, a pretty good 30 mile loop on it's hard to believe it's November 9th and it was 67 degrees here in central Ohio. We take advantage of every good weather day to get out. No matter what's going on, we drop everything, get out on our bikes. We only have a few more days uh, left. Uh, John and I have talked a good deal about his athleticism and being a coach. Uh, I've been coaching a variety of sports throughout most of my career. Uh, if you were to talk to John and you'll hear him momentarily, he's in his 70s. He sounds like he's in his uh, 20s because he's never lost that uh, verve to stay in shape. Although I've enjoyed over the years hitting him because he's a short distance guy in the cross country. You know, they do 5Ks and uh, 10Ks. And uh, the only races I've ever been in were all marathons because uh, I'm so slow. The only way I can do well is to have a very long race where the fast people drop out and the turtles just uh, keep on going. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, John, we are most interested in you as our guest because you are a true citizen warrior battling the climate change fraud. I'm hoping through the program, more of our listeners will become as proactive as you. What brought you to be so concerned with this issue? Well, let me respectfully edit just slightly your description of me a little bit. Climate warrior might be one way to describe me, but I think I'm, I'm really a truth warrior. I think that what I believe and what we, we all believe really doesn't matter. What matters is what the facts are. And what got me started in this, I, I, was, I was paying attention a little bit to what they called junk science back in the late you know, like 1998, 1999. And around the year 2000, I started paying attention to climate science. And um, that year, a gentleman came to our campus, Washington and Lee University in Virginia. And his name was Freeman Dyson. I think you both probably recognize that name. 
Yes. Freeman came to, to discuss the book that was selected that year that he wrote for the freshman reading program. And it was a fascinating book. And I'll try to make the, a long story short, in chapter 15 of that book, he talks about the theory of nuclear winter. Remember that theory? If there's a nuclear uh, uh, exchange, all the bombs are going to kick up so much dust, it's going to block the sunlight, Earth's going to freeze. Yeah, remember and, it well, yes. Yeah. And he, in that chapter of that book, Infinite in All Directions was the book, he basically spilled the beans on that theory. He said that this theory was not based on science. It was designed to utilize fear, to create fear, so that a large-scale number of people would either openly support or not oppose policies to unilaterally disarm. And I was astonished that this internationally renowned astrophysicist would make such an admission. And so when I got to, I was, uh, I volunteered for that. It was called the freshman reading program. We got to talk to all of the authors and I got to ask Freeman Dyson this question. Wow. Dr. Dyson, in your book, in chapter 15, you basically admit that the authors of the theory of nuclear winter let their scientific objectivity take a backseat to their political agenda. And then he interrupted me and said, yes, and I make no apologies for it. I thought it was the right thing to do then, and I still think it's the right thing to do. He was no uh, conservative. He was a liberal, pretty liberal activist. But anyway, and then I said, Dr. Dyson, I'm not trying to put you on the spot about your politics, but for those of us that are not scientists, how do we know what's true science and what's politics masquerading as science? Yeah. And what he, what he said next got me started and made every jaw in the room drop to the floor. He said, you don't. Take the theory of global warming, for example. That's what it was called back then. It's entirely based on computer models. It's not based on sci on evidence and facts. It's designed to, to create enough fear to, to uh, have enough people either openly support or not oppose policies to mitigate an imaginary problem. And everybody was just looking at me like, John, I can't believe you asked that question. But that got my radar started. And we'll talk a little bit more about Freeman Dyson, I hope, in the, in the interview. But... Um, in 30 seconds, he summed up the issue of climate change, entirely based on computer models. It's using fear. It's not data driven and it's politically motivated. Yeah. Freeman was a giant, was a giant. He passed away a couple years ago in uh, the field of astrophysics, uh, just respected by everybody in the world. And uh, being at uh, Princeton, he got a lot of attention. And he certainly never gave an inch uh, to the fraud of man-caused climate change. Uh, I have a very a close friend also from Princeton, Will Happer, and we had a date to uh, have dinner in New York a few years back, and uh, Will canceled. It turned out to be uh, on a Wednesday, and uh, Will said every Wednesday he has uh, dinner with Freeman Dyson, and at Freeman's age, he would never miss it. And he canceled uh, dinner with me. And I was very jealous that I I've actually never met uh, Dyson, but have read his work uh, forever. So you're uh, you're fortunate to have had that contact. I'm, I'm very, very jealous of it. What what have your what have your friends said? You know, you, you picked up this passion and we've known each other for some years now. What kind of reaction did you get? You've explained the reaction when you were there listening uh, to Dr. Dyson, but what has it been in the, in the privacy of uh, contacts that you, you have? Great question. Um, it was surprising to me how angry 
people were when I, when I questioned essentially their religion. You know, if I showed any doubt about human-caused climate change, I, I got called a homophobe. I mean, I was, I was clearly the enemy. And it was, it was a, an astonishing uh, development because I thought that since I was on a, uh, you know, an institution of higher learning on the campus of a, you know, a very elite university, that there would be some intellectual uh, back and forth exchange. But it was, it was entirely irrational and just emotionally charged. Yeah, it has become a, uh, a religion uh, based not one bit in, uh, in science. And it really has, as I pointed out at the beginning, it has nothing to do with science. It is a mechanism that has been extremely successful in creating a, a world of socialism, if not communism, uh, anti-science, and it, it's not slowing down. I'm an optimist, and I think it will eventually slow down, but we're not looking at it uh, yet. And as we speak, the UN is meeting in, uh, in Egypt, 40,000 bureaucrats, and they think they're talking about climate change. They're only talking about redistributing uh, wealth and using saying that the poor countries need money for reparations for what the richer countries are doing in terms of advanced economies, burning fossil fuel, uh, putting carbon dioxide. So it's good that the audience know right from the start. And again, I feel like we're having a recruiting session here because I'm hoping at least a handful of our listeners might contact us and say, well, what can we do? And they're going to learn a lot about what they can do from talking to what you are doing, uh, John. But it's important to understand it has zero to do with science. Uh, there is zero evidence that carbon dioxide emissions have any negative impact on the planet's temperature, have any impact at all. All it does is make the world greener than it, uh, than it used to be. So it's just amazing what you've done. When did you decide to address other groups and what kind of success did you have? What was it like? when you contacted a group and they said, sure, John, uh, come talk to us about it. Well, it wasn't until after I had quite a few discussions with, um, I'd actually had two more discussions with Freeman Dyson after that initial one. And then I, I just, it's amazing. I called up Richard Lindzen because I knew he was the top, he, he was in the literature. You know, you'd see that he was the number one climate scientist. And I can't believe how willing he was to talk with me. Guys, he, I bet we spoke dozens of times and he would say, we'd pass emails back and forth. He'd say, call me Dick. And it, he has a, he's such an intellect. He's, he's really kind of an Einsteinian character, but um, he, he has a hard time uh, communicating at, at, at the level of people like me. But that was a fascinating thing. And I would, I would call up and I, I shared with you some of the, uh, the personalities that I've talked with. It's amazing how many of these icons in the scientific community were willing to just chat. And I learned a ton from these guys. And so it, it was after a while and I, I did some reading research. I read the books. I audited the climate change class at school. I was, I was trying to educate myself. And the more I dug, the more apparent it was, there was no cause and effect evidence 
of a human of human produced atmospheric carbon dioxide on anything. Well, maybe on plant growth, but certainly not on adverse effects on climate. So what made me start doing presentations? Um, it was after I was, I wouldn't say overconfident about what I'd learned, but confident enough to start to share it at a time when I think it was back when the, um, I can't remember who was pushing it, but, but you remember when they were having talks about carbon taxation and yeah. um, the whole carbon industry was starting to ramp up. And I was talking with people and getting them after these presentations to sign letters to our elected officials in Richmond and saying, hell no, we do not want to be taxed for our use of automobile, you know, fossil fuels, et cetera. So that was kind of the initial motivation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, happily that failed. Uh, one of the few th- yes. <laughs> things these, uh, the fraud uh, did not succeed in is uh, the, the effort to have carbon taxes has not succeeded and is not likely to succeed because it was taking money, you know, right out of the pockets of uh, industry. And of course, even let's point out that we're not ever talking about carbon. We're talking about carbon dioxide. Carbon is uh, soot. It's uh, coal dust. And they, they want you to think again that uh, there's something really bad about carbon dioxide when, of course, uh, we all it's know. Radioactive. It's radioactive. Carbon is, <laughs> is poison. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what, Jay? Right. I've, yeah. got to, I, I've got to basically and respectfully disagree with you a little bit. I think that the cost, the artificially manipulated cost of fuel now is effectively a carbon tax. This is collecting taxpayer money worldwide, especially, you know, huge amounts in the United States to go toward political initiatives, which is the Green New Deal, the the, uh, renewable energy industry, which is you talk about fraught with corruption. But anyway, I think that we are being taxed. It's just not being called a carbon tax. I, I withdraw my objection. You're absolutely right. It's not being called a tax, but uh, the reason I'm paying uh, $4 a gallon for my gasoline in central Ohio uh, instead of uh, two and a quarter, which I was uh, a year ago, is definitely what they've done in making uh, carbon carbon dioxide be a negative. It is a hidden tax. I thought the uh, the election this week, you know, would turn that uh, back and make... Uh, the public realized that the government has put this over on us. And uh, unfortunately, it wasn't the election was not as successful as I'd hoped. Well, when I'm standing in line waiting to fill my car and I see the guy in front of me, I'll walk up to him and I'll say, now, I'm sure that you feel very reassured that the cost that you're paying per gallon is just the price that we have to pay to save the planet. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. that's what it is. That brings me back to the, the dinner table. Yeah, again, this is a recruiting lecture uh, for absolutely everyone listening to this program. In the course of your day, your week, your month, you're bound to listen to or discuss the issue of climate. And I think it's important that you wade into it and you don't have to know anything about science because there is no science. This is all a a welfare fraud to distribute wealth and essentially destroy capitalism. And one of the saddest things about it, you mentioned the renewable 
energy industry, wind and solar, uh, it has no economic uh, base in reality. It has no science to support it. But what it is doing is keeping the poor poorer. Uh, if we want to help out undeveloped countries and lift their economic well-being, uh, it isn't going to be by supplying them energy through wind and solar. It's going to be through supplying them energy with fossil fuel. And it isn't happening. They're, they're stopping it absolutely everywhere they go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you read Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, John? I sure have. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're using some of the techniques right there. And, and, you know, it's interesting because Alinsky doesn't say you have to become an expert in science or your topic. It's all about strategy and, you know, actually getting to the microphone in public meetings with politicians and things like that. We did that in the last Ottawa election. And we're told by conservative strategists that it had a significant impact. So have you gone to political meetings and yet tried to pin down the politicians on it? (laughs) Well, here's what I've done, and, and this I thought was going to be one of the takeaways at the end of the interview, but I think one of the most effective things I've been able to do after hundreds of failures, you know, you just don't persuade people that are drunk on the climate Kool-Aid. You're just not going to. But one thing that I, I thought was pretty effective was I called up a guy who's been uh, doing presentations locally. He's he's an alarmist, and he's just spouting off all the talking points, and you know, trying to drum up the fear, trying to get the fear freight train moving even faster. And so I call him up and I said, hey, Don, I just I want to share right up front with you that I'm a skeptic. I, I'm, I have yet to be persuaded about this whole man-made climate change thing. So for, the, for just to educate me and catch me up to speed, could you, could you please share with me? And I know the science is all settled, so there's got to be tons of it. But, and we don't really have time to go over all of the evidence, but maybe just the most smoking gun piece of evidence that, that shows a clear causal connection between human-produced atmospheric carbon dioxide and, uh, you know, changing climate. And, of course, he tried to dodge and weave. He couldn't answer that. He tried to change <laughs> yeah. the topic many times. I wouldn't let him. I kept coming back to him. And in absolute frustration, he said, you're just like one of these Jesus freaks. You think he's going to come down and save you. And, of course, what he did in his displaying how frustrated he was, he showed that he didn't have anything. And so yeah. I think if, if our listeners are motivated to, to communicate and educate others who have at least a partially open mind about this, I think that might be one of the best ways to do it is to pin down whoever it is. They can be experts. They can be. I asked James Hansen the same question, by the way. And he dodged and weaved and could not answer it, of course. And it showed in front of 300 people that he didn't have an answer. But mm. if you pin down the measurable influence, what is the measurable and the evidence showing a measurable influence of human produced atmospheric carbon dioxide? I think you've got a uh, you've got a you've got some traction. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because in the political debates they had here for the city of Ottawa mayor, because the election was back on the 24th, it became apparent that the people in the audience who are actually working with us, because we work with them on designing questions and things like that, that the audience actually knew more about the science and the engineering and the, and the economics than the actual candidates for mayor did. You know, and the question I like to ask often of climate activists, and I do this at the door when they come campaigning to stop climate change, I say, well, 
how much has it warmed statistically across the world since 1880? And they'll say, oh, it must be eight or 10 degrees. You say, well, no, actually, it's 1.2 degrees. 1.2 degrees Celsius is the amount of warming since 1880. And you say, you know, if a person would not even feel that in their lifetime, because it'd be some fraction of that. And so you're telling me that some fraction of 1.2 degrees, which you're saying is caused by humans, is a climate emergency. I don't think so. <laughs> and, you know, I find it astounding how few of them actually even know the base statistics. So with a little bit of education, spend a couple hours on the Internet before a meeting, look up a few facts, look at the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change, just read their summaries. It's CCR, which is Climate Change Reconsidered. So it's climatechangereconsidered.org. And if you just go to that report, read the executive summary, automatically you know more than 99% of politicians. Yeah. Let me throw in, I was wanted to talk about John's victories, and I think John has had more victories in this battle than, than he would, would ever consider. Those of us who, who fight for truth, and that's the point he made early on, that it wasn't just about climate change, it was just supporting the truth in all of science. It, we think it's a, it's a hard sell. And it, it is a hard sell, but we, you've got to lower the bar of what we call a victory. I was having dinner uh, with an old friend uh, not too long ago, and we, well, if you have dinner with me, you're going to talk about climate change. I mean, it goes without saying, I will bring up the subject. And uh, it was, we had a conversation that was only about five minutes long. And uh, that's all we finished dinner. Uh, two weeks later, I had dinner with this woman again, and the subject came up, and I asked her, I said, do you still have the same feelings that man has a contribute significantly to the temperature of the planet as you did a couple of weeks ago? And she said, well, of course not. I mean, you opened my eyes to the other side of the story, and now I look at it entirely different. And that was a, a small victory. And for those of us fighting this battle, we have to recognize uh, small victories. We're, we're not going to change the world, but we can change the mind one person at a time. What I think of that I actually do every day is I plant seeds. I plant seeds of, of truth in relation to whatever science I'm dealing with. And I may not, the, the seed may not grow at the dinner table or on a phone conversation, but I find they do grow with time. And that's all you can do is go out and do the best you can do every day and go back to your own place and prepare to go out the next day and, and fight. But we will mm -hmm. only win this, you know, if we get the, the most sensible people in the world, which we'd like to think are those listening to our show today, to be willing to be activists, at least in a small way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things I think is to give them an incentive to actually pay attention to the climate science, because if you show them the huge negative impact on their lives, on their paycheck, on the environment, on their children, because of the climate scare, you know, the actual things that are happening to supposedly stop climate change, uh, then they have a reason to say, oh, is this really necessary? It sounds pretty bad. And then you can come back and start to educate them. So in our case, with the Ottawa election, we educated the population 
about the negative impacts of their $60 billion climate plan. And now we're going to release a report about the fact you don't have to do it because we don't control climate change. So I think you have to set the stage a little bit before you get into the science. Do you find well, that, John? I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, um, may I suggest an additional motivating uh, concept for people to start paying attention to this. Does anybody now not recognize that, and we talked about this a little while ago, about the, the price of uh, all fuel being manipulated, and that's essentially a carbon tax. Does anybody not recognize that this is, this is a man-made recession, a man-made economic crisis? And Jay said it a little while ago. I think we all need to be more willing to say what, what it really is. This is designed to instill, install Marxism, excuse me, socialism all around the world, which is the same thing. And it's designed to cripple our economy is what it is designed to do. In fact, here's a little statement. I don't think we should shy away from this. Our current energy policies could not be hurting us and helping our, en our enemies more if they had been designed by our enemies. Mm -hmm. And if, if you ask somebody who's willing to listen, you don't want to be manipulated, do you? You don't want to be exploited for your natural and good and honorable human instincts, which are to save, to, to protect this beautiful planet we get to live on. You don't want to be manipulated for those honorable instincts, do you? And by our enemies and with policies that are actually designed to enslave. Anyway, it, you, can, you get the idea. You're 100% right. And the thing that our public has yet to recognize as based on the fact that for the most part in the uh, election uh, this past week, uh, they've, they've still gone along with the administration that has caused all the problems that you've described. And the thing that interests me is I, I read people's writings saying, oh, this administration has the wrong idea in the energy policies, which are raising uh, the price of our fuels. And in fact, they're wrong. Uh, this administration has exactly the right ideas when in fact it is their intent uh, yes. to raise the cost of our fuels. You they're not in company. The they're very successful. <laughs> they are very it. successful. And, and they are the enemy, unfortunately. You're right. The enemy couldn't do any better than they are doing uh, in taking us only in in two years from being energy independent, the biggest exporter of energy uh, in the world, uh, to moving us back uh, decades. It's Let's dig intent. into that. Yeah. We just have to go to a short break first. Okay. Join us again right after the break with John Tucker, who's a leading individual activist in the fight for climate realism. So tune in right after the break. While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. Cofix RX, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with Cofix RX. 
Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com Now the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you friends to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at americaoutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. So we're back with John Tucker, who's actually an inspiring American citizen warrior fighting the battle to convince people that the climate crisis is a complete fraud. So Jay, you had a question. Well, John, you have a very good handle, in my estimation, of the policies that have raised the price of all of our fuels, raised the cost of living, and has been really damaging the country since the election of uh, 2020. Describe those that you think have been most hurtful and actually carried out intentionally. Well, I think that um, our enemies, after after the Cold War ended, uh, our enemies realized they're no match for us economically and militarily because we were so economically strong. They figured out, and I think they have done a really uh, they've made some huge progress in attacking us economically. There's lots of ways of attacking us, dividing us, which they're doing pretty successfully. But if they can, if they can cripple our ability to manufacture, if they can cripple our economy, they have crippled our ability to defend ourselves. And that is what, to me, that's that's one of the biggest things that, that's going on is that these are policies designed by our enemies to cripple our economy so that we will not be able to defend ourselves and therefore be vulnerable to what's the word nuclear blackmail I don't know but um, it's it's something that it's pretty common sense the the way we won World War II was through our massive manufacturing capability one of them in the strength of our economy it was also the way we won the Cold War. Gorbachev realized, man, this economy is just, we can't keep up with it. And they folded up their tent. 
That's what it is. If we can be forced to be dependent on renewable energy, if that's what we're trying to do is, is replace the, the energy grid with renewables, gee, who would want that? Uh, our enemies would want that. How, how, not just irrational, but dangerous would that be? Yeah. Well, John, you, you said a mouthful uh, when you described how we won World War II with a, a massive manufacturing uh, program that was able to win the war. And I want to recommend to every one of our listeners, if they travel at all or they're looking for a trip to take, uh, make one to New Orleans where the World War II Museum is. Uh, I lived through World War II between the ages of five and nine, and everything about the war is very clear to me. And so I went down, the, the museum in New Orleans was built there because President Eisenhower said that uh, a man by the name of Higgins uh, took his swamp boat factory, manufactured 20,000 landing boats, and he became the most important person in the in the war, and uh, the, the powers that be in New Orleans decided that they would build this museum in his honor. It's been ongoing now for 20 years, and when you go through the museum, you relive the war. And when you get through, let's say, to 1942 or so in the war, you realize it was hopeless. There was no way we could win that war. It was a uh, the powers of Japan... Uh, and Germany and, and Italy and what went on in North Africa, there was no way we could win. But we pulled together and we did win. And as depressed as people may be today, in the war we're losing to socialism and communism, uh, they think we can't win. Well, we will win. Uh, we will pull together just as we did those many years ago. And in order to do it, we need everybody listening to this show to make some small contribution. And the contribution is small. But at the end of the day and the next day, you realize, hey, I, I did something to convince someone that the wool is being pulled over their eyes with regard to carbon dioxide emissions, the warming of the earth, the impact of climate change that has nothing to do with us. We all really need to participate. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask John to expand on the following list of activities that the individual citizen can take. I mean, first of all, talk to your family, talk to your friends. You know, what else would you suggest that people do with the kind of information that we're giving them today? Well, that that question presupposes that they that they want to do something about it. I, I think that we're struggling an uphill struggle because two generations have been indoctrinated to believe that this is this is a you know a done deal and science is all settled and the evidence is overwhelming and so why even question it well i think the first thing is to to not you, you can almost see the eyes glaze over when there's a discussion about climate change because it's just fraught with technical language it's just filled with all kinds of scientific sounding terms and you don't really understand them and so you just think I better leave this to somebody smarter than me. Well, the first off, I think that's the, the number one thing people need to do is dig for themselves. For example, if, you know, in the, in the whole idea of the carbon footprint, which is in the atmosphere, our carbon footprint is how much CO2, atmospheric CO2 we're emitting into the, into the atmosphere. Well, if you Google 
And I suggest this to people standing in line for a sandwich at a fast food restaurant. I'll talk to them about climate change. I'll say, you, you should try this experiment. Google components of Earth's atmosphere by percentage to find out that 78% is nitrogen, 21% is oxygen, and of the remaining 1%, nine-tenths of it is argon, third gas, which means only one-tenth of 1% of the atmosphere could even be greenhouse gases, of which CO2 is an extremely small part. And now they're starting to see the reference, the perspective of how small, and once you learn, and if you dig a little further, I say, if you find out that Humans only produce 5% of the atmospheric carbon dioxide, and all carbon dioxide, man-made and Mother Nature-made, is only 3% of greenhouse gases, which is only one-tenth of 1% of the atmosphere. Guess what yard line that is on a football field? What, what's our carbon <laughs> footprint on a football field if a football field represents Earth's atmosphere? It's not, about even an inch. The, <laughs> not even on the one-inch line, not even on the one-sixteenth of an inch line. Do wow. the math. It's on the one yeah. 184th of an inch line, a human hair. <laughs> and that gets people's attention. Yeah. 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 Step number one, then, is to get educated, learn some basic yes. facts. Yes. And then step two, you know, you're actually talking to friends and family. I've found calling in to talk radio is quite effective because you don't have the normal sensors that cancel you. And so you can't get letters to the editor published. But calling in to talk radio, you get your 30 seconds of fame and maybe 30,000 people have heard you. Um, yeah. What else? Should they go to meetings and bring up inconvenient questions? Well, this is jumping way ahead, but. I think that what we can do and I think what we need to do is I, I appreciate Jay. I love Jay. He's been he, you talk about a warrior and a, and a successful one at that. But honestly, I think the one on one communication is not going to do it. I think we need and Jay and I've talked about it, we brainstormed multiple times about some kind of a viral scale event that will expose the myth that will expose the fraud. And here's a suggestion. Here's another one, Jay. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you haven't. But I think that some of these newly elected governors. I'm gonna. I'm working with some people on the on the Governor Yonkin here in Virginia and his staff to try to get him to issue an executive order and try to get Christy Nome, try to get some of the other governors around the country, DeSantis, who knows, to issue an order to their Department of Education saying, you must order all of your state-supported teachers, all teachers that are receiving a, a check from the taxpayers of the state, they cannot teach humans are causing climate change until and unless it can be proven. And of course, that's not, this, that's not, a, a, that's not a magic bullet, but that'll get the discussion started. I think that's great, John. I think, you know, we are a, not a democracy, we're a republic, and the power is divided up among the states. We have an electoral college, and I think going after the governors that, uh, and we, we won many uh, governorships this uh, past week. We've got a lot of conservative governors and they really do have um, more power than the federal government in many ways in making an impact on their citizens. So what you just said is uh, a terrific idea working, you know, state by state and in uh, Tom's case, uh, recently working on the city of Ottawa that was about to spend billions of dollars of taxpayer money uh, in a very foolish way. They haven't totally defeated it, but uh, what Tom has done in Ottawa, it's probably we're 80% toward uh, more sensible energy in that city. 
But I, I want to leave the audience. Uh, you said something that it's so important that if I could, uh, if all the audience walks away from this show and remembers one thing you said, science is never settled. <laughs> science is never settled. It's a constant search for truth. I, many people have heard that I, when I was at Princeton, I you know, had uh, an acquaintance with Albert Einstein, kind of a nodding acquaintance. We'd see each other on the street. And not too many years ago, there were people still trying to overturn his theory of relativity. Mm -hmm. And very few people understand it, but it was perfectly okay to try to overturn uh, Einstein's brilliance. It's okay to over try to overturn anything in science. It's a search for truth. It is never, ever settled. And when you even hear anyone say the science is settled, you know, hold on to your pocketbook. Uh, these are not honest people. They know better. And of course, that's what you hear from the, uh, the, the liberal uh, left in this country. The science is settled and it's absolutely absurd. We learn new things almost every day, certainly every month. One of the examples I love to use that people kind of remember, we used to think that if somebody got ulcers, it was a result of their frenetic personality. They were type A people and it upset their stomach and they got ulcers. Uh, it took 20 years for a couple Australian scientists to convince the world that ulcers come from a bacteria that has to be present in the gut for the, the ulcer to form. And there are these kind of things going on all the time in science. It's never settled. And so when people throw that argument at you, when as John tries to do to convince people that uh, man's impact on his climate is, is negligible, if not zero, keep that term in mind. Science mm -hmm. is never settled. That's right. And it's a good thing to be a skeptic. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Tim Ball, who was one of our top scientists, actually, a very exceptional person. He sadly passed away about a month ago. But, you know, he told me, he said that when people say, oh, you're a climate change skeptic, he says, oh, thank you. <laughs> because, of course, skepticism is what science is supposed to be about. Otherwise, it just becomes dogma and religion. Yeah. Something I couldn't agree more on the, on the <laughs> science, science has never settled idea. And one case in point that's his pretty universally understood now, and I think we could make some, some tracks, get some traction with this, is the COVID issue. Does anybody now think that medical science is all settled after COVID? You can see how you can have an expert tell you anything you want to hear. Whatever you want to hear, you can find an expert to tell you that, which means that science is anything but settled in the medical mm -hmm. community. So why should we think that climate science of all the other branches of science is uh, somehow all settled. It's just, it's mm -hmm. not. Well, also I find it quite interesting how many, you know, climate change skeptics and climate change realists is what they really are, are also very skeptical about a lot of the medical statements that are coming out about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. You know, that a lot of them are naturally skeptical because they can see what's happened in the climate area. So, I mean, yeah, do you think that the public will be more receptive to questioning politically correct science after this COVID thing is over. I sure hope so. It's, it's not only apparent that, that medical science, and of course, there, there is no science that's all settled, just like Jay said, but after, after the experience we've all been through with COVID, it should be apparent that 
climate science, it's in its infancy. And if you talk to the experts, Jay would, would back me up on this. The people that know the most about climate science are the first to say how little we know about it. Yeah, yeah. And so for, for people to say the science is all settled, that's a big red flag. I tell you what's mm-hmm. equally a big red flag, and this is getting back to pinning people down on the, the evidence, on the, the measurable influence of human-produced CO2. And that is that if there is evidence, why don't they cite it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of personal attacks, they had know, evidence, they would be citing it right and left, but they don't. And that's evidence. There is no evidence. Yeah. You know, one thing that they almost always exclude from the climate change arguments when they're presenting this so-called catastrophe is they exclude the geologic record. They exclude the experience of geologists who actually look at the proxy record to try to determine what happened in the past when CO2 was much, much higher. And of course, what we see is that, say, 440 million years ago, when CO2 was at least 12 or 15 times higher than today, we were stuck in the coldest period of the last half billion years. And it was this revelation on the part of geologists that turned me from a sort of mild climate alarmist to a climate realist, because, I mean, it's just not there in the geologic record. So all they're doing is basing their climate fears on model forecasts of the future. And Jay, you're pretty expert on the models. I mean, how good are they? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's very interesting. The U.S. government finances 107 different climate models that they've poured billions of dollars into, and none of them agree with each other. Uh, They take the averages of of wrong and say, okay, that's what we'll, the numbers depend on. The the models are an absolute joke. Uh, The fellow at the the Harvard uh, has, Willie Soon, calculated that if you used all the variables that affect climate and you could have an equation that would show all these variables it would take the best computer in the world 40 years to come up to a number because there's too much data and we don't know anything about it. So what the models do is they grab six or eight variables that they think they have an idea of, and they put them in a mathematical equation and they come out with an answer that the government is willing to pay for. They to are- pay for. That's yeah, exactly it's, right. It's all about money. It's, it's an absolute joke. The models are starting to lose impact. People are starting to realize that they are of no value. But the fact that man caused climate change remains a religion, and virtually everybody in it is in it for money. Certainly the wind and solar people, a totally unreliable energy that we cannot run the world on. There's something I've written about recently that I think our audience would be interested in. Most people uh, that are listening now realize we couldn't run the world on wind and solar. It's undependable, unreliable. We have to have fossil fuels. We don't have enough energy to have all electric cars. That's an impossibility. They'll never exceed 10%. But the one issue that people haven't looked at is that computers in the world now are probably as big a user of electricity as there is. And as our energy supplies go down, if the computers that now run everything, everything talks to everything else, and it's all done on computers, that our society would come to a halt if we undermine the use of the computers that do everything. So 
the tragedy of even considering reducing the use of fossil fuels is well beyond what uh, anybody really can manage. It isn't going to happen. Now, it's to say we're never going to stop using fossil fuels and the world will continue. But everybody is suffering as a result of the effort to stop using fossil fuels. Everybody in the audience is paying more for gasoline than they should. They're paying more for a loaf of bread than they should. So everybody is being damaged, which is why we know that in the course of a week, 50,000 people listen to our radio show, either on podcast or the four times a, a weekend it airs. And we need everybody to realize we're at a war, a war of information, and everyone can play a role similar to what John Tucker has been doing in, in many past years. Mm -hmm. We only have a few minutes left, and I was hoping John could tell us, good point, Jay, I was hoping John could tell us what your current projects are. Like, what are you thinking of next in your warrior climate activities? <laughs> well, I mentioned a little bit about being in, in touch with the, uh, the cabinet of our, of our governor and um, trying to get an appointment to see uh, the lieutenant governor. You might remember Winston Sears and I'm um, not going to try to drop any names, but we're um, we've got a couple different angles and you might you might get your legal people. This is what I want to talk to Chris Horner about is the Federal Data Quality Act. It's got a new name. It was passed, I think, in 94, which requires the government to if they're going to be distributing any scientific information that it's got to be proven to be accurate. Well, guess what? I think that might be a platform from which uh some organizations could, you know, do some work, some leverage on getting the climate change uh, hoax uh, stopped. But I think that one-on-one, -on -one, we, we should not, we should not stop trying to help and, and share what we know with our friends and neighbors. But I think we need something uh, on a viral scale. We need a large scale event to show that they don't have any evidence. Mm -hmm. And if that can be done, I think we could get some real traction. Mm -hmm. So do you see some sort of a convergence between different groups who've been fighting different causes coming in to help us on the climate issue? Absolutely. I think we need to be organized. We've been out organized. Um, the, the left and the socialists are way ahead of us in organizational uh, uh, momentum. But I, I think that pooling our resources, pooling our, our, our what we've learned, uh, pooling our energies, I think we can we can come back, and mm -hmm. I'm with Jay. I'm I'm going to be an optimist about this. I think that really the truth is on our side. For heaven's sakes, it just mm -hmm. needs to get out. So yeah. I think we got to get organized and get it out, and be brave. And and you know this brings up the last question for me anyway, because we have about three or four minutes to go. Have you found this to be personally dangerous to you? Because, you know, the environmentalists give the impression that if you actually contest the dogma of climate change, that you're an enemy of the people. And, you know, who knows what will happen next? Have you found it? Have you had death threats, for example? No, and that, that is something I'm concerned about. But, you know, at this point, I think we're all on the other side of the poster from the one that used to, you know, Uncle Sam was saying, Uncle Sam needs you. Our country needs us. We've got to step up. I think, honestly, this this last disappointing election shows us that we can't rely on others to, to fix the problems. We've got to we got to organize. We've got to assemble. We've got to unite and, and take care of business. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you remember this quote by Winston Churchill. He said, you've got enemies? Good. That means you stood for something in your life. And I think that's the bottom line is we have to be brave. And, and Jay Lear, I mean, you set a fabulous example. Have you had death threats and, you know, inconveniences because of your points of view? Uh, I have indeed. More in the nuclear area. I was the go-to guy after Fukushima because I'd edited a book on nuclear power. And when I explained that uh, no one would die or even get sick at Fukushima because the winds would blow the radiation uh, away, people would die from the the tsunami and from pollution problems, but not from any nuclear radiation. And uh, yeah, I, uh, I, my mail for three years was very, very, very bad. So yeah, sometimes it's a little scary, but you've got to move forward. And John, I'm going to do something, uh, and, and Tom is, uh, we want you to get hold of Chris Horner. Tom will send you the podcast of last week's show with Chris that. Horner. Uh, He went to work for Enron in 1997 and was really on the inside of the whole renewable energy business and the fraud and all about the money. And then I will send him uh, a letter explaining that you want to get hold of him and to please uh, answer with his uh, phone number because uh, we want to get you in touch with everybody. You've done an amazing job with all the people you've already talked to, but uh, you'll be fascinated with Chris. He, he is uh, quite the lawyer and activist, and uh, he will be very helpful uh, to you in any in any way you ask. Right. Yeah, well, that's good. So we have to wrap up there. This has been a very interesting interview with the inspiring American climate warrior actually fighting to convince people that the climate change is a complete fraud. And he demonstrates how, after learning some of the basics, you can actually get involved in helping sway the mindsets of many, many citizens and eventually working on senior levels of government. So, John, thanks so much for being on our show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Well, this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.